What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Kara. Will, I realized that I forgot to say hey to open last pod. So, hey, hey. This level of attention to detail right here. This is why I like you, Connor. I don't know how I forgot. I never forget to say hey. And I say it, I don't know if I've ever, this is a little peel behind the onion here. I say it that way because when my mom calls me, that's how, that's how I answer the phone. Hey, what's going on? Same thing. Same exact thing. And I thought, all right, when we switch over to this spot, format of the podcast, that's how we're going to open every single time. So I apologize for the lack of hay on the most recent pod. I hope I will make up for it today. That's my goal. A man of habits, not superstitious, just a little stitious. Little stitious, little stitious, must always be a little stitious. Fun show today. We're going to discuss Bama's underwhelming coordinator hires and really why coordinator movement as a whole has become such a crapshoot to kind of figure out. Uh, Trevor Sikama from PFF is going to join us. We're going to talk some draft things after his weekend at the Senior Bowl, and then we're going to end with road trips in figuring it out and lad of the week. All right, big news over the weekend. Bama's got some pretty underwhelming coordinators. Your new top two assistants at Alabama are Tommy Reese and Kevin Steele. Uh, If you didn't think that was underwhelming, tell me how long it took for you to convince yourself that it wasn't underwhelming. And I'm saying underwhelming a lot because that's the overarching theme of the way that this all played out after multi-week searches that we were certain when they finished, Bama was going to end up with some sort of a splashy household name. And Kevin Steele's a household name and Tommy Reese is maybe becoming one, but mm, not exactly the names that we thought Nick Saban was going to end up with. Does it mean that they can't succeed? For now, I think it just means that These weren't as highly coveted jobs as many, myself included, thought. Will, as an LSU fan, when you saw that these were the two hires, you thought to yourself, okay, we're good. We might be all right. You know, you guys heard me on the podcast over and over again. Truly terrified we would end up with Dan Mullen and Jeremy Pruitt. And I know the Jeremy Pruitt situation is a little bit hazy. I don't know if yeah, he's available. You know, like, I don't even know if they could have really hired him. I think those are kind of like backdoor conversations. But, yeah, I um, breathing a sigh of relief because the whole thought among other fan bases was how long are they really going to have these type of coordinators? Because we're used to, you know, the Lane Kiffins. We're used to the Pruitts. We're used to, you know, these these guys who are destination guys. And even Bill O'Brien, I mean, you know, former NFL head coach and GM, you know, not a shabby hire when it was announced. So, yeah, I think it is fair to say that they were underwhelming. Here's what I mean by saying that I don't think these jobs were as highly regarded as is what what some expected them to be. In early February, Alabama hired a coordinator who will turn 65 next month, who has now had three consecutive seasons in which nobody was saying at the end of those seasons, wow, well done, good performance this year. And Alabama on the offensive side hired a 30-something offensive coordinator who got full autonomy for the first time in his career. But even at his alma mater, he had plenty of that fan base saying, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Not to Bill O'Brien levels, but I think there were plenty of Notre Dame fans who were perfectly fine seeing Tommy Reese walk. Tommy Reese is not splashy. Neither is Kevin Steele. That doesn't make them bad hires. And if you're assuming right now that Saban's judgment is just totally off, those are probably going to be words that come back to bite you. That's the way that this often works out. I realize maybe if you were down on the peak holding higher, I guess you were kind of proven right on that. That's fine. Um, Only one national championship. What a fraud. 
Yeah, technically only wins the one. Yeah, so I guess you're proven right. So good on you for that one for doubting <laughs> the two higher appearances. What did my put for on? Yeah, two. No, we had three appearances because 2018 counts. Yeah, 2018 counts yeah. as an appearance, although Bama didn't show up in the actual game itself. And then 2020, you win, and 2021 obviously went down to the wire. Um, if you are thinking these are the most coveted assistant jobs in college football, I, I push back on that a little bit. If you're the Saban DC, you're never going to get full credit. You just won't. That That is reality. There's nothing you can really do. You could have the number one defense in America. You could win the Broyles Award. And ultimately, some will still refer to it. Many will still refer to it as Nick Saban's defense. When and Kevin many S- people didn't credit Kirby when he left. And look what's happening now. <laughs> a fair point. A fair point. When Kevin Steele left Alabama and he was going to like he was he was seeking other opportunities that happened after he was there for the first two years that Saban was there 2007 2008 he was the defensive coordinator but he left for the same job at Clemson which yeah like okay he gets to go back to his home state he's from South Carolina I get it but he also got full control of the defense instead of having Saban and obviously a certain Kirby Smart who was rising the ranks as an early 30s guy and he felt, I want to get to a situation where I know I have full control of this, and this is my thing. Since Steele left for Clemson, 12 of the last 14 seasons, Saban's top defensive assistant in a given year has been someone in their 30s. Let me repeat that. In the 14 seasons since Kevin Steele left Alabama for Clemson, Saban's top defensive assistant has been someone in his 30s. Trivia question for you, Will. Can you name the only top defensive assistant at Alabama during the stretch from 2009 to 2022 who wasn't in his 30s when he served in that role? I think somebody just kind of grew up. Was that like a year of Pruitt or something? It's two years of Pruitt. Very good guess. Yes. Pruitt early 40s. So technically, mm-hmm. like you get it. Like, I don't think that's a coincidence. I, I really don't. I, I think it's because that role is much more as Alabama defensive coordinator, that role is much more about kind of a mentorship and trying for it to be a stepping stone for the rest of your career than it is some destination job. That's the way most assistant jobs work, of course. There's not really no assistant job in college football is considered a destination job, but whenever it opens up, we kind of treat it like it's going to be for somebody. I don't know that this is a destination for Kevin Steele or if he's got ambitions to to get back into being a head coach again. More thoughts on kind of the unpredictability of those things in a little bit here. I do know that if there was ever a coach who probably wasn't scared about hiring Steele, knowing that there was um, there there at least was a few years ago some powerful people in Kevin Steele's corner, like Saban doesn't have to worry about that. He doesn't. Don't have to worry about a coup. You're fine. Don't worry yeah. about it. Speaking of coups. I know there was obviously hope that Jeremy Pruitt was going to be the defensive coordinator. There's still hope that he can join the defensive staff in some capacity. I never thought it was going to be some obvious thing where he was going to be the DC, uh, at least like in a no doubter situation. NCAA stuff is still hanging over him. We don't even have an official punishment for Tennessee after the 18 level one violations from the Pruitt era, which we should be finding out about really, really soon. I think there was like a 60 day appeal. They got an extension and then there was another appeal to be able to find that. out. I think we're finding that information out really soon, but if Pruitt gets a show cause and Bama hires him, Bama gets in trouble for that. So that's like, 
that's that's kind of the problem and why there's a little bit of the, the why why it's murky. We can definitely call that entire situation murky. And I'm pretty sure that only applies to the on-field roles, I want to say, which is why there's still kind of this speculation that you could just put them in this role as an analyst and then, all right, if still doesn't work out, then you just boom, plug and play, good to go. I mean, that would be conventional wisdom and there would be all that speculation if we found out that Alabama could indeed hire him as an analyst, but that's up in the air. That's up in the air. I, I love this stupid freaking sport, man. You got a guy who basically his own university ratted on him. This is after the coup. I'm not even talking about the coup. His own university ratted on him. And then now they're sitting there delaying punishment deep into what could be their kind of golden era so they could prevent their rival from also hiring this guy who is their ex-coach. This is like complete. This is soap opera stuff. I love it. I think in Tennessee's defense with the delaying of the punishment and all that stuff and, and and um and having the response, I think it's because they want to get as far removed from the time in which NIL wasn't a thing. They That's another get, thing. The get stuff as far away he from did would be totally. I mean, maybe like the McDonald's. You wouldn't need to do the McDonald's bags if they were NIL deals. It would just be what they're doing now with their new quarterback. It's just here's you know lots of millions of dollars come play for us. The Athletics out here writing about thirteen point eight five million dollars for Jaden Rashad on the deal that fell through. Meanwhile, Jeremy Pruitt is under siege for sixty thousand dollars. It's yeah, how about unbelievable. This? The amount of cash you could fit in a McDonald's bag is not thirteen million dollars. No, whatever it's not. that is, yeah, it couldn't be that much. What is the most amount of cash one can fit in a McDonald's bag? I must know. It's more than sixty thousand dollars. It has to be. I would think. Mm. There's no way that I can actually practice this, but someone get on that biggest bill possible McDonald's bag. You get what I'm saying. So like, could the Pruitt dynamic theoretically have scared off potential candidates? Maybe, maybe, I, I don't know. But outside of when Bama hired Pruitt from Georgia, which I guess that's not really hiring him from Georgia. That only happened because Mark Rick was fired. Kirby was going to be the head coach there. So it's not like he's going to keep Pruitt, you know, right. as his DC or something like that. Like, but think about it. When was the last time that Bama was really able to go out and land some coveted DC, right? Because Tosh Lupoy, Kirby, internal promotions. Golding was a 33-year-old coach from UTSA and <laughs> Boy, did he hear about it during his entire time at Alabama. This isn't really a splashy position. It's not. I just don't think it lines up well for what the position is offering. I think it takes a certain level of acceptance knowing that if the defense falters, it's your fault entirely. And if it doesn't, your boss is going to get the majority of the credit. That's a really basic way to think about this. But I think there is something to be said for this. And we have this perception in our head from Kirby and Pruitt that it's some incredible stepping stone. But both of those situations, I would kind of argue, were atypical. And they didn't follow the typical linear rise that we expect all assistants to be able to follow because Kirby spent basically his entire 30s soaking in everything Saban did. And Pruitt was like, what, the seventh choice to get that Tennessee job after a coup and after three different stints as a power five DC? Like, that's usually not how this works. And by the way, Florida State, Georgia, Alabama, then he gets a head coaching position. That's not the way this typically goes either. So don't forget Hoover High School. <laughs> we never That's forget. He was, yeah, he was on MTV. That's the weirdest part of his resume. It's ten, thinking about the timeline of his career. And I always think about how old he was when he was on two days because he was in his early 30s during that. And I'm thinking to myself, well, okay, when I was a kid, I thought this man in his mid 40s doesn't know what asparagus is that's 
awful. But now being at the age that Jeremy Pruitt was at when he admittedly didn't know what asparagus was, it, it makes me feel a little bit better about where I'm at in my life. I'll just say that. It's, it's even funnier the older I get, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> Can you imagine just not knowing a vegetable at this stage in your life? Uh, whatever. I don't think that this situation is um, is ever really going to open up for some great market for a DC. Now, that's 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 on one side of the ball. You could probably make the case that the OC job at Bama is much more of a stepping stone. And as we talked about with O'Brien, it's still such a unique job. The guy had consecutive top six offenses, and he was public enemy number one. He was. How many times has, has Bama truly celebrated an OC hire? Think about that. Even Lane I think, and Sark. I think Lane Kiffin. I, I think Lane Kiffin. Sark was kind of coming off of the weird. He has all kinds of stuff. No, on. go back. Go back with Sark because he's coming off the no, Falcons. No, 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 no. I was not saying Sark. No, oh, no, okay, no. I, okay. but, so he had lots of weird stuff going on. I think Lane was pretty like, they at least they thought he was like a crazy madman who said everyone was going to get under control, but his talent was never questioned. You know? Talent never questioned. Agreed. Right. Some skepticism about how that dynamic would work. And the, it ended in him just leaving before a national championship game. So yeah. the skeptics were right to a degree. Yeah, skeptics, you were proven right. Wait out your take long enough and you'll be proven right. That's the moral of the story in the year of our Lord 2023. Right. Um, th- so I, I think that's that's kind of worth remembering. Like as great as these jobs seem to have been, and, and they are really good jobs. They are. Like you can get a splashy hire to be, Bama, to be the Bama OC. You absolutely can. But you can still almost always guarantee that there's going to be a bit of skepticism. And Reese, I would argue, neither splashy nor obvious. It wasn't. The hope is that Tommy Reese is going to get Bama back to the physicality at the line of scrimmage. That's the the biggest area of need and why Saban probably fell in love with him during the interview process. The knock on him from people like Notre Dame great Tim Brown is that his play calling was a bit too predictable. But the funny thing and we talked about this a lot during last season. It felt like Alabama fans would have actually sacrificed some unpredictability if it meant controlling the line of scrimmage and kind of leaning on the ground game and suffocating teams a bit more than they did during those yep. two years with O'Brien. So from that standpoint, if you're talking yourself into Reese, you have that kind of working in your favor. Listen, you, could, when you have more talent than the other team 100% of the time. Predictable is good. Because yeah, you can't stop predictable extent. when they're punching you in the mouth. To a certain extent. There, there, yeah. there is something to be said for that. And, and Alabama trying to get back to that, that identity is going to be a topic of conversation as long as Tommy Reese is the OC. You can also sell yourself on the fact that Brian Kelly wanted Tommy Reese to come to LSU, but we know what happened. He stays at Notre Dame where he was given full autonomy of the offense and stuff like that absolutely matters. It does. So you're talking about someone who a year ago was coveted by two of the sports premier programs, LSU and Notre Dame. Right to, to be the offensive play caller. The knock, of course, now is that he had one season of total autonomy and he barely cracked the top one third nationally in scoring. And how much of that was because of the, the, the quarterback injury to Tyler Buckner? Uh, like I said, that Marshall game was not the byproduct of, of a quarterback injury. It wasn't. It was really was bad. About to say, you know, I would have just gone straight for the Marshall game. So props to you for looking up stats. Yeah, of course. It was it was bad, and there were moments when that offense just felt like it was totally stuck in the mud. They got, they got better down the stretch; they absolutely did. But 
you know, I, I still think that there are understandably some questions about how he's going to handle those expectations. He's going to get more talent to work with. That's not going to change. Alabama just signed the number one class of the country, even though they didn't have coordinators. So that's not really an issue. Maybe Tommy Reese is going to be working with Ty Simpson, guy that he recruited to try and come to Notre Dame. That's, that's possible. My prediction that Ty Simpson would be the starter instead of Jalen Milrow maybe got a little bit better with the addition of Tommy Reese, potentially. Either way, Nick Saban is banking on his offensive coordinator to be hungry and capable of developing quarterbacks while also getting back to smash mouth football. He is not being asked to come in and overhaul the scheme drastically. Remember, every post-Kiffin OC at Bama runs a variation of the Kiffin offense, but they're obviously allowed to put their tweaks on. That's kind of the understanding. That makes perfect sense why Bama wants to do that, and it also makes perfect sense why some potential OCs, maybe like Washington's Ryan Grubb, might have been like, eh, even with a, a, being able to obtain total autonomy that I currently don't have, I'd rather run the scheme that I know how to run. So mm-hmm. this is, again, why this is not such an obvious fit for everyone. I don't think the takeaway from these hires should be that they're destined to fail, nor that I, nor do I think that you can automatically look at this and just say, upgrade, upgrade, upgrade. And I've been asked this already. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think I, I all my, my takeaway is that you just, you can't say that with certainty. You can't, I have more skepticism than optimism right now. But at the same time, that's usually when Bama is at its absolute best. Five of those six national titles under Saban, they weren't preseason number one. The more significant takeaway is that neither one of these jobs is an I'm dropping everything job in the way that some might have assumed that they were. Any other thoughts on those two vacancies being filled before I dig into something that I've kind of noticed with some of this coordinator movement? Um, couple. So I think that... You know, you, I think you hit the nail on the head that it is becoming less of a destination job because you get none of the credit and all of the blame, right? So Nick Saban is as close to a made man as has ever been in the history of coaching, right? So if something goes wrong, fans, pundits, rivals, or I mean, as a rival, I want to make fun of Nick Saban, but what can I really say at this point? You know what I'm saying? Who I can make fun of is Pete Golding. Yep. And boy, did I. <laughs> and so point being, you know, it doesn't really matter unless these people are, you know, like I said, Dan Mullen or Peru, like a guy that's that made. But I actually think that he didn't go after those kinds of guys for a reason. Because I don't think that you go for 0 for 2 on those kinds of guys um, at Alabama on purpose. I think that he got two guys that are going to listen to what he says. And I think that for Saban, the things that drive him crazy are what? Turnovers and bad execution. Okay. Seem other than when Jalen Milrow was playing, did not have a ton of turnovers. Still more than he probably would have liked. Jalen Milrow was a turnover factory. But the execution, if all starts, all that type of stuff. All right. Now, what you hope for in this Reese offense, which could go ahead and politely remind everyone, Tommy Reese played for Brian Kelly under Mike Denbrock. So he's like Brian Kelly's grandson. So whenever speaking of him, you know. So what we've seen what makes him his grandson and not his son? Well, because of Denbrock, there's a level between them. Okay, fair. All right. Yeah. Okay. That was like the OC under. So, so point being, you know, if you watch those type of offenses, and I just did for a season, they're very clean. The execution is done very well. Um, you know, when guys learn the playbook, uh, and I think that at Alabama they have a commitment to excellence that will cause them to learn the playbook a little bit quicker than they did at LSU with all the depth issues. So, I think they're going to be a little bit similar. 
Um, but but I think at the end of the day, you know, it was, it was two things. It was I think he didn't want those type of big personalities that would clash with him. I think Saban knows how to win football games and he wanted guys that he could say, hey, you know, here's the vision I have. Um, I want to run this. I want to bring in a Mullen who has his own philosophy, who's going to kind of muck things up. I want my brand of football and I will live by the sword, die by the sword, which I think at his level is totally understandable and respectable. Um, I think it also moves toward, to your point, more smash mouth football. Talking about winning the line of scrimmage, great O-line play. As you guys have probably heard me talk about, Brian Kelly, great at making tight ends, great at making offensive linemen. Uh, you'd be shocked to know that Notre Dame is kind of offensive line. You um, obviously have the guard up in Indy. That's awesome. They have just kind of put guys out every single year. Nelson, yeah. Yep. There you go. Like he's a mauler. I remember playing him. They, I didn't play him, but they played him in the bowl game. Uh, LSU did. And it was, it was terrifying. He was throwing dudes that were first round draft picks. So point being like, they do a good job of developing nasty O-line. And O-line play has been historically bad at Alabama, despite an amazing amount of time. These guys would go, you know, top 10 overall, but in college, we have false starts and holds. This is just inexcusable. So I think that you're getting guys on the same page. So once you do that, you shorten the game, right? You You don't have all these like, you know, wide formations. You don't have all these wide receivers. You have a lot more smash mouth football. And a lot of the issue that Pete Golding dealt with you know, especially during the COVID year where he called a lot of smack, especially during the two years, not as much lately, because I think Saban started to see this, uh, is when the game is fast, when there's lots of scoring, the defense is on the field a lot. And when the defense is on the field a lot, they can blow some coverages. They can make some mistakes, especially when Pete Golding's from D.C. So I think what's going on here is that they're trying to shorten the game in the way that they used to play dominant football and in the way that Kirby Smart plays football. Um, intelligent football. We talked about it in the SEC championship game, how LSU was just down 14 out of nowhere because there was a turnover and Georgia controlled the ball and they just put it down LSU's throats and then played great defense. And I think that that is a style that through the Lane Kevin like kind of coaching uh, philosophy, Alabama has gotten away from their true roots under Nick Saban, which was smash mouth team, few defensive possessions, but they're impactful. You're forcing turnovers, something that they haven't been as great at. You know, talk about under Pruitt, they were scoring as many defensive and special teams as offensive touchdowns back then. That was what their bread and butter was. And Bama fans would tell you they'd rather celebrate a defensive touchdown than an offensive touchdown because those are more rare. And they swing the game in ways that, you know, so, so you look at these last couple of years. They were they were just not a scary team. They were not scary on defense. They were not you didn't fear playing Alabama. And Brian Kelly showed you that when he went for two on them. I mean, imagine going for two on Bama back in the Pruitt days. Pruitt would run over to the sideline and punch you in the face Probably. himself. Yeah. Scott Cochran would punch you in the face. And so, point being, they've slowly gotten away from that kind of smash mouth football. And 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 schematically, I think it's going to be very interesting. It's going to be for the older Bama fans. I think it's going to be a nice breath of fresh air because I think that you know those of you that have been screaming at your television say we throw the ball too much. They get on the road and would throw the ball a billion times to a low completion percentage. They wouldn't run the ball. There will be lots of running the damn ball, as the hats always say. And the adjustment is going to be, I think, somewhat significant from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. Because if you're brought in there under the impression, all right, you're you're going to run the ball more, it's going to be a little bit different to, for developing a quarterback and holding a quarterback to the standard of Bryce Young, Tuatung Bailoa, Mac Jones, Jalen Hurts. I think that's really difficult to do for um, for for the situation that that we expect this new Bama quarterback to be in, whether that's Ty Simpson, whether that's Jalen Milrow, whether that's anybody else. And so that's going to make it a little bit complicated and you're going to have to look at some of the parts probably a little bit more in terms mm-hmm. of evaluating, is this working? Is this not working? I am so interested at the thought process that Tommy Reese went through. Mm-hmm. I think that is so, I think that's the most interesting element of this entire thing because you very rarely will get somebody that comes from uh, his alma mater 
where he's already, you know, he's, he's the top offense. He's the top assistant there. And he is probably thinking to himself, and I, I shouldn't assume this, but where is my best place to become a head coach? Am I more likely to get a promotion working at Alabama and going out and do great things, just as all these different Alabama offensive coordinators have done, or could I come under fire spending another year on this staff, a staff that look, he was recruited to stay, which made sense, but there's always a little bit of that. Yeah. But, and it's the different regime and you're part of the old regime. And I wonder what went into that and how much Nick Saban was able to play on that because that ultimately is why he probably accepted a job like this. And some Bama fans might hear that and think, oh, well, then that's a stepping stone. And he's going to be one and done, and, and he's going to be gone really, really soon. And ideally, yeah, two years of being a great coordinator, and then he's gone. That's this working out. right? That, that's what this is, to be 100% honest. And Alabama fans who don't want to accept that and want to think that, oh, like, oh coordinators should be around like Kirby – you're looking at this all wrong. And I don't think there's a lot of people that think that, but I think there are still some that believe you can keep a coordinator here for X amount of years. It's like, well, yeah, just because the ages might be similar doesn't necessarily mean that's the way that works. We've also gotten younger with our FBS head coaches, all those different things. But I just am so interested in the psychology of what went into that decision when Saban came calling. Yeah, 100%. And you've seen, you know, talking about the missing piece here, not to keep hyping up LSU, but all these defensive coordinators under Brian Kelly that got head coaching jobs. You know what I'm saying? And so it's funny to think that you're coming from an environment where you've seen all of your peers get head coaching jobs and you're just like, ah, I think I'd rather go to Alabama. So honestly, it's a pretty big indictment of Notre Dame and where they are as a football a football program that they can't even keep an alum who spurned Brian Kelly last year. Um, Really quick, can I, can I talk about the spread thing that I texted you about? Yeah, yeah, fire away. So I think this hire signifies as well that the spread is starting to die. If the spread's not dead, it's mm. it's getting close. Um, and I kind of like went down this like little rabbit hole on Saturday night thinking about this because if you guys remember when the spread took over college football, right? Uh, part of that was the Urban Meyer stuff, but then really, you know, the Big 12, talking about Sam Bradford, Johnny Manziel was a practitioner of the spread. And you saw that as an Alabama fan specifically, you know, with all these small receivers and these linebackers trying to cover them. Well, what's happened since then is personnel and alignments have changed, right? So the old school, like Ray Lewis type linebacker. 30 for 30, did really... you watch it yet? What's up? Did you watch 30 for 30 yet on the Ravens? No, 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 no. Is it good? I, I have it DVR'd. I, I have it fired up. I'm I'm excited to be able to watch that because the clips I saw were incredible. But yes, continue. Sorry. No, you're good. Ray, see, Ray was made for social media. I wish he was a little bit younger. But anyway, um, that style of middle linebacker, that the do-it-all middle linebacker, you know, those are going extinct because specialization is starting to happen. Whenever you see these sub packages, you see how many subs are happening in the game. And that linebacker who stays on the field and stops the run, does coverage, rushes the passer, spies, does all that. It's a lot harder. The guys who have survived that can do it are elite, but if you don't have an elite guy, you know what I'm saying? And even some elite guys like Harold Perkins are being put more into the box. Their responsibility, they're not being asked to cover. And so that's why the spread is not as effective as it used to be. We always used to say, oh, get some spread guy in here and we'll just run, we'll play fast and we'll play the spread. Well, now defenses have seen this for 10 years and you have kids that grew up only seeing the spread in high school. You have a nickelback, like a starting position that is yeah, a skill set. Yeah. 
Yep. And 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 there are guys who were just great nickelbacks. Nudie McGovern at LSU was one of those guys that was just a nickelback who went to the NFL is probably going to do similar things there to break the rotation. And so that's where defenses are starting to make their, their money. So simply being spread is not enough now. We saw that with Bill O'Brien. Yeah, you could have five guys running routes, but if they're all covered, it doesn't really matter. And so now you kind of go back, go back and you say, well, what's hard to stop? And I start thinking about tight ends. Right. That's how Georgia won. You talk about Brock Bowers. You talk about these freaks they have in their tight end room, all four of them who decide to show up on a given day. And and it turns into, okay, if you start off tight, you can't go with those small guys. You can't line up all these nickelbacks, all these DBs. You have to respect the run. And when you get a guy like Brock Bowers, what he reminds me of, and this is going to be a wild comparison for some of you. It's like in the NBA, how guys like Giannis and Zion bring the ball up now. Right. And so back in the day, tight ends were these big palookas, as my dad used to call them, these big goofy guys like Bear Pasco who were just in there to block and occasionally run a route to throw you off. Well, now you have a guy in Brock Bowers who has wide receiver hands who can run an advanced route tree that will still punch you in the mouth. And I think that if you look at what Georgia's X factor is, it's the fact that they could come out looking similar and do 10 different things. Whereas previously you just sub, you'd say, oh, this is a tight formation. We're going to bring out our heavy, you know, heavy package on defense, get a bunch of hog mollies and clog up the run. Or this is spread. We're going to go with the fast guys. Now you can be multiple. Like they always just talk about being on defense. You got to be multiple, right? Heard that a ton from Coach Still o. talk about it. Yep. Oh, yeah. Everybody tries to be multiple because at the end of the day, now we're seeing this progression. And, and Todd Monk and Georgia, congratulations, your offensive innovators. You've wanted this for your whole lives. Soak it in. Do you see what Georgia did? And I saw it in the FC Championship. Game. I don't know what they're going to do. Are they going to run the ball? They're in the shotgun, but they have two tight ends. This guy's in motion, but does that is it a crack? Is he going to run a route? And I think that if you look at what Tommy Reese does, it's that little bit of old school mentality with that little bit of motion, with that little bit of shake that'll get the defense off balance. So I think that Alabama always kind of signifies a change in college football. When they hired Lane Kiffin, it was a really big deal because Saban was a little bit hesitant until he saw Johnny Manziel, until he saw Hugh Freeze. Then he started getting more spread. Now you see he's getting away from the pro guys, from the, from the spread guys like Sark and the, the up and down style that used to run because he's trying to shorten the game and I think that if you get these number one classes you're going to have some swap monsters playing for you that can play tight end that can line up and bend these college kids that have to go to home ec class next week and so at the end of the day imagine playing for UAB and trying to cover Brock Powers we saw how that went you you need a man you need a lunch pail you need to be at least 6'4 you need to get something out there and, and, and so point being I think that Bama instead of getting these wide receivers to make individual plays is going to scheme through the middle of the field because they're going to have great line play they should have great tight ends and you look at how lsu uses taylor it's very similar to what reese does now and they just move them all over the field and they make the defense account for him on every single play and i think you're going to see a lot of that with reese um so and shout out to my boy uh, max Descano. I, I often talk about him but i had like a long conversation with him about this making sure i didn't sound too stupid but point being i think that you know, college football goes as Alabama goes still. And this is one of the last hurrahs for Nick Saban as he gets a little bit older. And it might signify a complete change away from what we've seen in college football. Fascinating. And you're 100% right. I think what's lost in the shuffle of that of that concept and why it's able to work and why there's versatility, your receivers and your, and your tight ends as well have to want to block. Yep. If they do not want to block... You're not getting those edges. You're not mm-hmm. getting those guys in the outside where you're like, oh my God, that was like a little little swing pass to Lad McConkey. And he t- he had like nine yards before anybody touched him. Those guys at Georgia block on the outside. And that is such a stark difference between a lot of the way that offenses are programmed now. And that that part is is vastly overlooked. And I think having that 
is is like the 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 final piece of the puzzle and why you can be versatile and you don't necessarily have to bring a guy off you're like ah he's kind of a liability he doesn't really want to get out there and and throw hands and like the one thing i always give george pickens credit for is like is he threw some hands he threw some hands man like when that guy flipped that switch and he's like i'm gonna be a great blocker he bought into that fully and if you can get your guys to buy into that, you are so much better for it. And you can run some of these bunch formations and you can have a tight end that's interchangeable, whether you're running, whether you're passing, whatever you want to do. And Alabama is seeking to have some of that versatility while also being okay with occasionally being predictable. And that's that's a complicated thing. And I'm not even fully sure that I understand how that's going to look with Tommy Reese. But the more position variability that you have, the more predictable it kind of allows you to be in some of those moments, especially late in the game, when you feel like, all right, we just have this team on its heels and we can just take over. And that's what 100%. they aspire to be. Yep. Okay. Let's let's close this this first part before we get to Trevor. Uh, let's let's close with some thoughts I've had about just coordinator movement in general, because I think there's been a lot of moves that have happened in the last few weeks in which we've all kind of been like, huh, okay, interesting. The basic concept of coordinators making money now is so much different than it was six, seven years ago. And the the money is absolutely insane. They are also moving around at insane rates, some by choice, some not by choice. If you didn't see, Josh Gaddis was fired by Miami last week. Josh Gaddis, a guy who was once the co-OC at Alabama. Mike Loxley was the offensive coordinator. Mike Loxley, Josh Gaddis, pretty public disagreement about who was running the show there. Mike Loxley was ultimately the guy who got the Broyles Award. But Josh Gaddis got the Broyles Award for the work that he did at Michigan, running that offense in 2021. And then he makes the eh, somewhat surprising decision. Okay, I'm going to go to Miami. I'm going to go start something new there. Maybe I feel like my path is best. And boom, don't you know it, after a year, he is gone. And we'll kind of wait and see if there's anything that plays out. But pretty atypical to see someone fired a year after winning the Bros Award as the top assistant in college football. You would think that winning an award like that would be some sort of sign, some precursor that you're going to be at least a solid head coach, right? You would think. I looked at the last 10 Broyles Award winners pre-Gattis. Oh, boy. 2011, John the Don Chavis. OG listeners <laughs> of this podcast know who that is. The Very chief. Well. The chief, yeah. 2012, Bob Diaco. 2013, do you feel the strain? Do you feel the strain? Bob Diaco, civil conflict. Who could forget? Civil conflict. 2013, Pat Narduzzi. 2014, Tom Herman. 2015, Lincoln Riley. 2016, Brent Venables. 2017, Tony Elliott. 2018, Mike Loxley. 2019, Joe Brady. 2020, Steve Sarkeesian. How many of those guys would we say with confidence are decent head coaches right now? I'd go... Narduzzi, Riley, Loxley. That's it. We got the same list. Yeah. Yep. Like decent head coaches right now. Chavis and Diaco are currently position coaches in the USFL. Brady is a position coach in the NFL who's already been fired once since winning the Broyles Award. How much of that was on Matt Rule? How much of that was him just being in a weird situation? I, I don't know, but his stock has definitely taken a hit in the last couple of years. Venables and Elliott haven't shown anything after year one to suggest that they're at that level to be considered decent head coaches. Sark is 59 and 47 as a power five head coach. And if Herman was a decent head coach, I imagine he would have had far more power five interest than what he got post Texas. But now he is trying to rebuild his career at FAU. 
What's my point? Success as a coordinator doesn't mean success as a head coach, though it's ironic because it's pretty much what determines whether or not you get the head coaching job. We don't know these things ahead of time, obviously, and you still have to reward the great assistants, but it dictates why certain coordinators get so antsy. They've seen this. I had someone tell me that when they were a coordinator, they knew that the head coach was actively making sure that they wouldn't leave to get a head coaching gig. They'd badmouth them. They would try and do everything that they possibly could to keep them in that current role because it was working out well. It was working out really well. There are, and nobody will say this, but coordinators are, they're like the rest of us. They're looking out for numero uno. They have to, they should. Even if you're in a different situation with a head coach who gives you a glowing recommendation is different than this head coach who became a head coach that I mentioned. Even if you're in a spot where you're you're going to be getting recommended for bigger opportunities, you're also in a business where just one bad year can be all she wrote. We talk about that. That's that's nothing new. Even Dabo, who is the most loyal coach on the face of the earth, that guy is Hufflepuff through and through. He he fired Brandon Streeter after one year of him having that opportunity, and that was seen as such. We talked about this with David Hale. That was seen as such a big breakthrough moment for Dabo. Now you could argue that the idea of going out and getting the Broyles award winner, Garrett Riley was the only reason that that happened and why Dabo was willing to make a move. But look at Garrett Riley's situation. Riley gets to call plays. He gets to win the Broyles award for TCU. And then he goes to Clemson, which I'm sure there were TCU fans. And like, we're the runner, we're the national runner up. Like how's, how's, how's that not a lateral move? It's a lateral move, right? We think of lateral moves so much differently than these coaches. I promise you that. We really do. Some want to go to a place where they feel like they can parlay it into a head coaching position. Most want to go to a place where they feel like they can have full control on their side of the ball. Right. And that's why the Kendall Bryles thing kind of surprised me a little bit. If I had to guess, I would say that Sonny Dykes is slightly more hands-on than Sam Pittman. But even if all things are kind of neutral, you know, Arkansas returned pre-draft KJ and Rocket while TCU lost its top three offensive players with Duggan and with Quentin Johnson and Kendra Miller all going to the NFL draft. But besides just the, the desire for Bryles to get back to the state of Texas, I think there's some element of uneasiness about how much more likely it is that you get forced out a year from now instead of getting some great opportunity to be a head coach elsewhere. Again, not saying every assistant wants to be a head coach, but you know what no assistant wants to be pushed out. Yep. Bryles just got himself more job security by starting fresh at TCU. I, on, I pause, absolutely think right there. I, you hit the nail on the head there. And I want to say too, stability for these guys is such a big, not moving backwards, right? Because you talk about Gaddis. Why did he leave Michigan? Because Harbaugh was actively seeking employment in the NFL. And yep. then you don't know, even if you win the Burroughs award, what's going to happen? Cause a new staff is going to come in. So you go to Miami who has a new staff and you think, well, at least I'm going to get two or three years. And you look at the same thing with um, our boy, recent podcast go, uh, uh, guest Arnett, you know, when coach O was calling all those people after 2020 yep. trying to get a new DC, he straight up told him no. So many people told coach O no because they knew coach O was a dead man walking and they were right. And so the prestige of the LSU job was overshadowed by the insecurity of a lame duck head coach. So I think that's a really big piece of the puzzle that you just hit on. And what does Kendall Bryles do? He aligns himself with Sonny Dykes. Sonny right. Dykes ain't going anywhere do i think Pittman is is going to be fired or anything like that no we did the entire buyouts pod we talked about that but as we know if things go really south 
Yeah, it's not impossible to think that he could be gone at season's end, like, and his staff would just be wiped out. That is not the case at TCU. Now, obviously, he still is going to be subject to a very high standard at TCU, but expectations probably a little bit lowered coming off of a championship season in terms of the production loss and all those different things. But these are just the types of things that we can very easily lose track of. And I'm including myself in that because I definitely lose track of this stuff. These guys know how quickly things can change, and I think they're paranoid about it. I really do. We'll bring this back to the Kevin Steele thing. January of 2020, he signs a new three-year deal at Auburn to become the richest assistant in the sport after four consecutive years of top 20 defenses. By the end of the calendar year, Gus is fired. Steele is reportedly at the center of a coup to try and get the job at Auburn. Reportedly. Another coup. Second coup of the day, folks. In case you're <laughs> second, third? I don't know. I lose track of all the coups. There's a lot of coups in college football. Yeah. So he then gets to do office work as the interim head coach at Tennessee post-Pruitt before Heupel comes in. He takes $900,000 for two and a half weeks of work. Kudos to being able to do that. He hangs out for a year. He looks like he's going to be the DC at Maryland working with Mike Loxley. And then Mario Cristobal brings him in one year there and then back to Bama. Three years after his contract to be the top paid assistant in the sport. And which was a no brainer at the time for Auburn. Now it's kind of like, eh, really, really coordinators know how fleeting this stuff is. They really do. Tom Herman is such a perfect example of this hottest assistant in the sport. 2014 post 2014, Mm -hmm. after what he did with those Ohio state quarterbacks, if you could have bought, bought stock in any coach for the playoff era back then, you probably would have had, I can't put a number on this. You would have had a lot of shares in Tom Herman. There wouldn't have been probably four coaches in the sport, four or five coaches that you would have had more shares in than Tom Herman. He told LSU no as well. Yes. Don't ever tell LSU no. Or maybe do, and then you could be on the Zach Arnett path. Maybe. I don't know. Six years after that, after that was a, not a unanimous thought, but a consensus thought in college football. Tom Herman, out of college football. Basically treated as damaged goods. It's crazy. Unless you're Brian Ferentz, your job isn't guaranteed. (laughs) There we go. You have to constantly be on your feet, on your toes, which is why I think we have the movement that we're currently seeing with these coordinators, even though we might perceive some of these things as lateral moves. He's a Ferentz is not on his toes. He's on a squat rack. He's getting swole. He didn't have to worry about it. That's the thing. He has so much time to lift because he knows he doesn't have to update his resume. Did he ever for a second think he was getting fired? No, certainly not. Thanksgiving would have been awkward, man. (sighs) But yeah, I wanted to say too about Steele, you make a great point. Remember, he was co-defensive coordinators at Miami with Charlie Strong, who's another guy. (laughs) Sure. Who went all the way up and then all the way down. And he kind of did the opposite of that where it's like he was at Texas and he was kind of down after that. And then he went to um, USF and he was back up. And it was like, yeah, so like, guys, that's why, you know, just the, doing the whole like uh, ladder of the week thing. It's like, that's why you just never want to burn bridges because you never know. Because when you're at the top and you're telling, you know, these big time programs that, you know, F off or whatever, then you then you're at the bottom. And it's like, hey, bro, can I come be an intern like Butch Jones? <laughs> and it's a single season can completely nuke that. And you're right, though. I think the the, the the security is what drives a lot of people. And that's why the steel move makes a lot of sense. You know what I'm saying? For both parties, because they know each other and they know what they're getting. The the Charlie Strong thing is, is fascinating too. Like six oh, years yeah. ago, I remember going to USF and I'm like, oh, all right, Charlie Strong is he's building his career back up. He'll probably be a power five head coach again really, really soon. And you know, that's that's just the way that this is gonna go for him. And he kind of had to have a setback at Texas and he's gonna be just fine. And it's like, no, th- th- there's just 
there's just not the guarantees that we think. Even for somebody that seemed as steady as Steele was, now, gosh, if he can be that steadying presence at Alabama, that would be considered like a massive win because of how low those expectations are, at least from the outside world. Okay, before we kick it to Trevor, quick word from our friends at Underdog. So as we know, sports betting, not legal in all these states in the SEC, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, South Carolina. I want to talk to you about Underdog Fantasy. Might have tried Daily Fantasy in the past, but Underdog is a new platform that's extremely popular right now, and they have some awesome contests where you can compete for real money. It is a great way to scratch that sports betting itch. We have an exclusive arrangement right now with Underdog. Go to SaturdayDownSouth.com slash Underdog. You can automatically double your deposit when you join. Sign up, throw in 50 bucks, they'll throw in 50 more dollars. It's a great way to get some money to play on these contests. Every week, you can pick higher or lower for different players. Very similar to sports betting player props, and you can put real money on the line yes legal and live in all of those states in the sec alabama georgia florida texas etc so super bowl they've got all of them set up you can go on there go to underdog.com be able to pick out exactly what you want all of those picks are sitting right there for you if you're like ah you know maybe i've got some action on squares or something like that or you know i, I get into the props get involved with underdog i got two more for you that i i, I should have had these earlier and I, I don't know why these weren't the first that, did, that didn't come up uh travis kelsey over 0.5 touchdowns that's Tra- travis kelsey getting into the end zone seems like all right receiving touchdown that happens for the chiefs if you were betting on the most likely one that obviously takes the cake and only it you know it's if the over under was one that'd be, that'd be a different story but him just getting one i think that hits and then even in I just want to say really quick back to the tight ends thing. You know, two of the top five playoff receiving yardage leaders are now tight ends. So Kelsey feels like he's going to get something. <laughs> that tight end revolution. We're, we're going to have to do a tight end specific open. That's what we'll do sometime really soon here. Uh, and then we'll do Pat Mahomes over 0.5 interceptions. One pick's coming. That Philly pass rush can be maybe a little bit hobble, something like that. You could definitely see that happen. Underdog is awesome. Super fun to do while you're watching football or any other sport in your living room, and you can win some real money. Go to SaturdayDownSouth.com slash underdog. Take advantage of our promo where Underdog will double your first deposit up to $100. $100 absolutely free. That is SaturdayDownSouth.com slash underdog. All right, let's kick it to Trevor. Now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is PFF's Trevor Sigma. Uh, Trevor, I, I want to talk about an athletic event that happened on Saturday that you're plenty familiar with. Um, people given their all, a lot of lives changed. <laughs> I am, of course, referring to the Krispy Kreme donut race that your fiance, <laughs> our good friend Alyssa Lang, took part in. So for those who don't know, didn't see this on social media, the race two and a half miles, and then you got to eat a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts and then run two and a half miles back. I need the the PFF breakdown of her performance because I know you weren't able to see it because you were at the Senior Bowl, which we're going to talk about. But I, right. I think there were probably some clear takeaways from her effort. Well, true. First of all, I truly wish I could have done it when she told me that she was doing it. She was doing it with her her brother and her dad. Uh, I was very, very jealous because anytime you get to do something like that, one, it's a great cause. It's 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 something for charity. You know, it's not just something that people wake up and they just go, yeah, let's do this out of nowhere. <laughs> um, it's 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 a charity event. It's a great one that NC State puts on there in Raleigh, North Carolina. But uh, they participated in it. It was her first event. I got to give her a grade. I'm gonna say. The time was good. The time was actually pretty good given all the circumstances. I'm gonna give it, I'm gonna give like a high 80s grade. I can't quite give it an elite grade because she didn't finish all 12 donuts. Now, like, unless you're in the competitive division, 
not a lot of people do, right? Because just saying it out loud, uh, some people might get a little queasy in the stomach. But I think she threw down eight. I think eight was the number. So it's solid. We we ate Krispy Kreme donuts two and a half miles there, two and a half miles back. It's a solid performance. So I got to go I, somewhere in the high 80s, probably the PFF grade that I got there. Did she rise or fall on your draft board? Oh, rise. Oh, well, okay. See, this is a trick question. Look, you you know what? You pa- you painted me into a yep. corner. Yep. Because because if I said rise, that means she I would have had area for her to improve. And so now you got me. Now you got Connor, come on, man. You're fooling me here. No, I said where to clip no, this. It was a it was a, it was a phenomenal performance all around. If scouts anywhere didn't already have her number one on the board, then that is the spot that you've got to have her now. 12 donuts in five miles. Like that, the, the, the list of people who actually did that has got to be so minimal. That That's insane. She told me that the person who I think has finished the race the fastest was like 30 minutes. What? So, so like we're right. It's like something. It's it's like right above 30 minutes. It might be like 32, something like that. But it's insane. Like that's that's an insane pace for five miles anyways like it's barely over six minutes a mile and you're hammering home 12 donuts and the thing is if you're in the competitive division she told me you can't run and eat like you have to get you have to go two and a half miles there and then you have to eat all 12 before you start running the other two and a half because like i guess the casual people like you can go you can pick up a box of donuts and you kind of like run jog walk while you finish the donuts to get done with it but somebody out there slammed home 12 dozen donuts and finished the race uh, a little over 30 minutes, which is insane. Salute to him. That person's got to be number one in your draft board, I think. I no, I'll see. You're not, look, you're not going to fool me again. Alyssa's <laughs> still number one on the draft board, but they could be number two. They could be number That's two. Fair. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, so you were at the Senior Bowl. Uh, who was the biggest winner at the Senior Bowl, and why was it Ty J. Spears from Tulane? Oh man. I, so he, I, he certainly was one of them. I, he was such a phenomenal player that was able to stand out in so many ways. And, and the thing that was most impressive with Tajay Spears is that's not an event for running backs to really show out. Right. I mean, most people only care about the practices anyways. You know, the game is kind of like, it, it's a little pro bully, right. Where you're just trying to get as many people in as possible. It's kind of like this, you know, we've, we've got to give people, I don't want to say equal playing time, but you want to give all these guys as much opportunity as you can during the game. So you don't really get to show your stuff completely. Um, it, it, like it's a full game performance. So when it comes to the practices, that's really what I think a lot of these scouts evaluate. Cause you get to watch all the reps of one guy go through a lot of these different drills and for running backs, their bread and butter, just as a point of the position is contact balance. It's how you take contact. It's how you break tackles. It's how you uh, you get those hard yards, like all that stuff. And there's not really a lot of that in the practice because you don't want to be going full contact. You don't want these guys to get hurt. You're not going to the ground. You're barely bouncing off tackles. And yet Tajay Spears was so elusive, was so fantastic with his one-cut ability and his breakaway speed that he literally had some touchdowns throughout the scrimmage practice week, which just never really happened, of like 30 yards, which never really happens in practice performances. So Spears, no question about it, one of the biggest winners on the week because of that. Another running back, Chris Rodriguez. Um, He was there, if this is 1995, maybe he's a (laughs) first-round pick. It's not. Right. Um, he's been working on the pass catching parts of his game for, for a while. I mean, this is somebody who got NFL draft feedback back in 2020, and he's been well aware of this process. 
Um, he got a couple of opportunities on Saturday to be able to showcase that, had a couple of catches in the actual game itself. I think there's a lot of Brian Robinson in his game, or maybe like if you're the team that is hoping to draft Bijan Robinson and you can't, maybe you wait a couple rounds and you draft a guy like him who you know is going to be really solid between the tackles. Um, what's your read on his draft stock after the weekend that he had? Yeah, I mean, I think the third down ability that you brought up is huge for him because he is a bigger back. He's a power back. You mentioned if it was a little bit of a throwback, if we were in the mid-90s, he'd probably be somebody who's going to be drafted a little bit higher than what we think. I think he's probably just a day three prospect. Where you go at that point really just depends on preference of how teams like to use their running back, how deep they want their running back committee to be because some teams – Like they want one feature guy. Like if they can get one feature guy, they want to give all the carries, all the emphasis to, they want to be able to lean on that player no matter what. Other teams, very comfortable with the two back rotation. Sometimes it's a difference of style. Sometimes it's a lighter speed guy uh, paired with a power guy. Sometimes it's more of two of the same kind of running backs that they just like to get and rotate in and out to keep those guys fresh. Some teams like a three deep running back rotation, right? You got a speed element, you got a power element, and then you got third down specialists, right? So I feel like, Rodriguez has the chance to fill, I think, maybe two of those spots in a deeper rotation, a three-back rotation or a two-back rotation. And it feels like that third down ability is where he would shine. You've got to be able to, with his kind of style, you've got to be the guy that teams want to go to in short yardage situations, right on those third down, those third and ones, third and twos, third and threes, to be able to pick up those first downs. But then in order to get in the game, in order to get on the game on third down, People don't often realize it's not just about being a power back. If you want to be a main third down back, you got to pass protect and you got to pass catch because there are times when they're going to throw you out there and that's where the call is going to be. That's what they're going to want to do. That's how you're going to attack the defense better. And you just don't want to be a liability. You don't want to be a personnel liability, right? When teams, when teams know you get in the game, they don't want to say, oh, this guy can't catch. So don't really think about him at all. This guy can't pass protect. Let's go after him. You know, you don't want to be a liability in that regard. So being a third down back, it's, you know, it's kind of like nickel corner, right? Where nickel corner used to just be, okay, who's who's the third best corner on your team? And they you'd put them at nickel. It's not the case anymore. It is a full-time specialized position to be a nickel corner. And I think you're seeing that throughout college football and in the NFL. For Chris Rodriguez, it's kind of that same thing. Third down back isn't just the third best running back on the roster anymore. It's a specialized position. So just because he's a bigger dude, a more powerful dude, doesn't mean, oh, short yardage back, you make him the third down back. You got to improve in those other areas. Like you said, you know, he's been working on it. He's been able to showcase a little bit, was able to do so in Mobile. But I think he's going to be that kind of a back, and that's probably how the NFL is going to view him. His teammate, guy a lot of people are talking about, Will Levis, um, he wasn't there at the senior bowl, which I know a lot of evaluators would have loved to have seen that. I don't really know. Like you're kind of where you're at with Levis here. You're probably not changing your mind a whole lot on him. I know you've had him coming off. I think the top four, basically dating back to the fall, you've been pretty Mm -hmm. steady on him. Give me your best case for him to be that guy and to live up to that. But one caveat, you cannot use the word tools or upside. (laughs) Okay. Look, uh, Will Levis, I think is a really great prospect. I won't, I won't use the, I won't use the tools or upside, but I will say that the guy's got an absolute howitzer of an arm, right? I, I mean, the the five best throws, if you will, of Will Levis stack up against any quarterback in this class, and I think that's the allurement there, right? You look at so many different teams that are starving for a quarterback right now. You can just go through. Uh, it's 
Houston, it's it's Indianapolis, it's it's the Carolina Panthers, Las Vegas Raiders, the Tennessee Titans, the Washington Commanders, and that's just the teams kind of as I'm going through the order in my head that might need a quarterback. And look, I agree with the people out there that would say, oh, I'd, I'd much rather take Levis at the top of the second round or maybe the back end of the first round. Sure, but a lot of teams would. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the position can change a franchise so much, you know they're going to get... I don't want to say overdrafted, but they're just going to be valued at such a premium because of what it can be. Will Levis is somebody who I just know NFL teams are very big on. Um, He's got a lot of the potential to be that franchise quarterback. I kind of view him a little bit the same way as like I do Anthony Richardson. I'd like for Will Levis to not have to start right away, but I'm also not naive enough to think that that's where we are with the NFL landscape right now. They want these young guys to start. And so I don't even know if that's going to be the case anymore. Indianapolis feels like a great position for me, for Will Levis. That's a spot that I would really like because I think the offensive line is there. Did they have a bad year last year? Absolutely. But there's also reason to believe you throw one or two guys, you, you take one or two guys out, maybe mix and match a little bit. That offensive line could be really nice next year. You have Jonathan Taylor behind you, who is one of the best backs in the NFL. You got Michael Pittman Jr. You got Alec Pierce. You're probably going to add uh, more weapons, especially speed weapons, I think, as the draft goes on. So that's a spot that I would really love for him. And they just have to be, happen to be picking number four overall. You know, if, if Indianapolis was picking eight ninth maybe that's where i would gravitate towards a little bit more with will levis being able to stand at a spot like that but you know it'd be tough for him to go to las vegas i know he's got a lot of great way he would have a lot of great weapons there but the o-line's not really good in front of him the defense is all up and down i just feel like the team might struggle a lot in itself if josh mcdaniels is out of there does he have an early coaching staff change i don't know about all that I also wouldn't mind him in Carolina as well. Carolina at number nine. Maybe that's the true quote unquote sweet spot for him because it's an offensive line that's getting better. It's a head coach in Frank Reich who knows what he's doing with quarterbacks. And it's just a young up and coming team that could, I think, build around him. Maybe they bring in a veteran and he could sit behind him. But those are kind of the situations that I think Levis could really thrive in. And I do think it's still a little bit of a process. It might be some learning pains or growing pains, if you will, if you just plop him into the NFL and just have him start right away. But I do think he has the tools and the upside mm. to be to, to be a good quarterback in the NFL. Five-star quarterbacks coming out of high school, first-round quarterbacks coming out of college. Fans are impatient. They want to see them. The second 100%. that starter falters, yep. it is all about getting that person, that guy in the game. We can point to examples in the past of, of an Aaron Rodgers or a Pat Mahomes. Their starters were playing well. And they got to sit there and develop. It also doesn't mean that it's going to work like that for everybody. And that's the the worry that I have for the situation that both of those guys are going to be in, Levis and Anthony Richardson. You have them in the 7 to 26 range uh, for Richardson. Mm-hmm. Same exercise with Levis, but again, we can't use the word tools or upside. Yeah, so Richardson, I, I keep going back to this example because I think it's the best one to kind of encapsulate my thoughts on him. A lot of people look at Anthony Richardson and they hear the pros and the cons from him. They hear the arm talent, the mobility with his legs, you know, all this incredible dual threat weapon that he could be. And then they look at some of the statistics, you know, a just barely above 60% adjusted completion percentage, raw completion percentage in the low 50s. I mean, that's not what you would want. I think he had, um, I think it was 19 big time throws this year compared to 13 turnover worthy plays. So the efficiency, you know, in college, you want that number to be, 
much different. You want a big time throw, way yeah. higher turnover he plays, way lower because you just know when you get to the pros, it gets much more difficult. The March for air is so much thinner. So with Richardson, a lot of people look at that situation. And they go, okay, hold up. This is the same conversation we have about Malik Willis, right? Malik Willis coming out of Liberty, he goes in the third round. So if we're talking about this guy the same way, why are, why are people projecting Richardson to go top 20 when Malik Willis, who also kind of had that hype, that top 20 hype, didn't even get picked until the third round? Shouldn't we be learning our lesson? Uh, some counters that I would have to that is, one, I don't think Richardson declares for this draft if he's not basically told he's going to be a first round pick. I don't know sure. where it is. It's going to be in the first round, but you, you know, when you are a quarterback as talented as he is, you got people in your ear, right? You got people in your ear telling you about it. I'm sure that he submitted a request to the NFL draft advisory board. I've got to think he heard back that he's going to get something in the first round. That's the hype that he has. So I think that we're somewhere in there and that's probably where we start the conversation. Another part of this especially to differentiate him with Malik Willis is with Malik. It was if the footwork gets cleaner, if he doesn't move around in the pocket as much, if he doesn't bail from those clean looks, if the accuracy gets better, if the throwing motion is more consistent, if the decision-making is a little bit better, then he will be able to achieve his potential for Anthony Richardson. It's not as much of an, if we've actually already seen what it looks like when he puts it all together. There are plenty of clips where Richardson can handle a pocket, navigate it well, not bail from it too early, put his feet in the ground, shoulders and feet are pointing to the target. He throws the, throws that ball with touch toward the sideline, and boom, it's a beautiful bread basket throw exactly where it needs to be over the shoulder of the defender and into the hands of his wide receiver. I've seen that throw multiple times from Anthony Richardson. You just need to get it more consistently. So I would say the big difference between Richardson and a guy like Malik Willis is you're still talking about that top tier potential with him. But with Richardson, it's less of imagination of something that you haven't seen yet and more of just how do we get this guy to be more consistent? And then on top of all that, you throw in the fact that he was only a one-year starter. And I think a lot of NFL coaches are going to think repetition, 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 and we're going to make the most out of this guy. I keep going back and forth with the, the Jalen Carter, Will Anderson thing, because, you know, I, I think they can wreck games regardless of what sort of scheme that they play in. And I'm going to be disappointed if my bears don't end up with one of them. And I kind of want them to stay in the top four and, and, and trade out and be, be able to get some more value, obviously from that number one overall pick, who is the better prospect to you? If you're just doing big board and if you're not picking Oh, this team would go this direction. This team would go that direction. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have say the cop out at the at the, the very beginning of this to you know save me as all good draft analysts do. But so much of what allows these players to fully achieve their potential is kind of who they are. And I've never sat down with either of these guys. You know, I can only hear hearsay of stories and everything like that. So that is a massive part of what goes into even incredible talents really achieving their full potential. But I'd have Jalen Carter number one overall on my big board if the NFL draft were this weekend. Uh, the man's unbelievable. And I don't know how else to say it. Anybody who's watched college football, especially SEC football over the last two years, knows that. I mean, we were talking about a defensive line with Trayvon Walker, Devontae Wyatt, Jordan Davis, Nolan Smith, right? All of these guys. And yet people were telling us last year 
Jalen Carter as a true sophomore was the best one on the defensive line. You have a year where now all of those guys are gone. So a ton of the attention is now only on Jalen Carter. And I saw some of those unbelievable plays I've ever seen from a college defensive lineman this year. They're triple teaming this guy. Centers and guards are keying on him for doubles, and the running back is sitting behind him just in case one of those guys lose. And guess what? They probably did most of the time, and the running back would have to come in and they'd try to triple team him. I just feel like his, his rare combination of speed, strength, and size is unmatched. And I do think that we say that a lot in, in scouting. I think it's a cliche. You say those three words uh, with, with, with um, strength, speed, and size. And it's never been tr- more true than what it is for Jalen Carter. I think that's just the way that I have to say it. You look at how this guy's even built. It's perfect. He's, he's got he's got the perfect weight in the lower half. He's, he's stacked up top. He's smaller in the middle. It's not like he's carrying all this bad weight, nothing. You throw this guy, and just to, to your point with the Bears, the reason why I think he's the perfect fit for the Bears is because if you put this guy at three technique, he's going to wreck some games for you. Yep. And in Matt Eberflus's defense, that is a paramount position that they do not have filled right now. I would tell you that in Eberflus's defense, the number one most important position is to have a dominant pass rush potential three technique defensive tackle. That is Jalen Carter. And I do agree with you. For as much as the Bears are going to get plenty of call-ups to number one overall, I don't really know if you want to get past the, the top four because you want to make sure that you get one of Jalen Carter and Will Anderson. And I don't think you can go wrong either way. I think both are going to be great I, players. Yeah, right. I do too. And, but it's it's interesting because, and this isn't an exact comp, but I'm curious kind of what your take is. Like if you were just told I could have 10 years of Quinn and Williams or 10 years of Aiden Hutchinson, right? Quinn and Williams coming into his own right now, a guy that does really unique things as an interior pass rusher and Aiden Hutchinson, who looked the part as a year one guy, you'd probably go with Quinn and Williams because of how unique that is. Or the alternative is like, are we just overthinking this? Will Anderson just did things that we haven't seen in a really long time at the edge position, playing in the toughest division in college football. Shouldn't he just be the guy? Like, is there value in just simply because of the position and how unique Jalen Carter's skill set is? And that's potentially why he's going to be drafted ahead of Will Anderson. I would say yes. That definitely goes into it. Like for for as much as I don't want this to come off as disrespect for Will Anderson or even disrespect to just great edge rushers, it is still a major premium position in the league. I do think there is more scarcity when you talk about the rare air that it feels like Jalen Carter could be in. There is a smaller pool of those interior defensive linemen that can be true game wreckers than even players on the edge. And, and so I, I do think that that certainly goes into it with me having him number one overall. These are two really, really good and really talented players. I wish Will was more, how do I say this? I wish he had a better pass rush profile this past year. I felt like he was just out-athleting a ton of people two years ago, and offensive tackles were not ready for it. He is so explosive. He has good bend, and he understands how to attack outside shoulders. And as an athlete, I just think that offensive tackles weren't really ready for him two years ago when he should have been a Heisman Trophy finalist. This past year, I think offensive tackles obviously knew who Will Anderson was. They understood that his bread and butter was attacking to the outside. And when they kind of 
I don't want to say cut that off, but when they went into a game plan, knowing that that's what Will Anderson wanted to do, he was still effective, but I would have liked to see some more inside counters from him, from some different moves, just to fully round out his pass rush profile. Now, the best part is he's still a young prospect. He's only three years removed from high school. He's got plenty of time to learn that in the NFL, but that's kind of the way that I view those two guys. Jalen Carter, you could pop in on the, on an NFL field right now. And I feel like he would just be an absolute monster. Will, I do think it's going to take a little bit of time, kind of like it did for Hutchinson. I think that that's maybe a career progression or first year progression. I think that's a really good comparison because Hutchinson too was a guy who won a lot with speed, won a lot with attacking on the outside shoulder, things like that really came along during the second half of his rookie season, but it did take him a little bit of time. And I wonder if that's going to be the same thing for Will. If Brock Bowers is draft eligible this year, where does he come off the board in this class? Oh man, in this class it would have been high because there's there's not a ton of wide receivers that would have really threatened him. Like Michael Mayer is in this class, the Notre Dame tight end, late first round and, guy, yeah. And 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 Michael Mayer is obviously really good, but Michael Mayer is not an elite athlete. So I think that. Man, I think I think Brock goes top ten in in this class, and he might go top ten next year, right when he's eligible. But I, I when when you look at this wide receiver class specifically, uh, there's things to like about Zay Flowers, Jackson Smith and Jigba, uh, Quentin Johnston, right? There, Jordan Addison. There, there's a lot of guys to like, but there's nobody who you go, yeah, we gotta have that guy. Like we gotta have him. Brock Bowers is one of those players that you just got to say, we've got to have those players. And so that to me vaults him up even higher than maybe if he would have been like, ah, you know, good tight end mid first round pick. I think he would have gone in the top 10 of this year's class. If he could have been eligible. Who's the guy that you find yourself kind of leading the the bandwagon for, I I know you love Darnell, Wright, Tackle from Tennessee. who just had an awesome year in pass protection, especially. Uh, I noticed you a Gator yourself with, the Twitter handle Tampa Bay Trey uh, conveniently mocked Osiris Torrance to the Bucks. So I'm guessing those two guys you're bringing the drum for. Yeah, you see how that works. You know, I get to I get to control the mock, so yep. I get to uh, control the destinies. No, I mean those are two players that I really like. I, you know, I, I I don't know why Darnell Wright's not getting more hype. Right, I, I talked about him as a back end of the first round guy, but I've done a couple of mock drafts recently where, you know, I had him going. 16 to Washington, you know, it's a, a place like that where uh, maybe uh, 17 to the Pittsburgh Steelers, right, right around that range. And I think that's where we really start need to start to have the conversation about Darnell, right? And maybe that is, maybe that does mean that I'm really leading the charge for him because I don't see a lot of people that su- are super bullish on him, but he's so battle tested. I mean, he went up against so many great pass rushers in the SEC this past year. Uh, he was really steady. I feel like right tackle gets slept on big time because. A lot of people are in the mindset of, oh, you want a franchise left tackle. You want a left tackle. You want to protect the quarterback's blind side. Sure, obviously still very important. But guess who has to face the best pass rushers in the NFL? Right tackles do. Because for so long, left tackles were always the best offensive tackles. They were the better offensive tackles. And defensive coordinators eventually started figuring out, like, wait a second, why don't you use rush over the here other side. yeah right <laughs> i mean like this guy this guy's not nearly as good as the other guy so why don't you do that having a really solid right tackle i think is also extremely important so darnell wright's got a ton of experience doing it love his mentality man he was a guy who was down at the senior bowl and just from the very beginning i just love the way that he approached 
the, the position, you've got one-on-one drills between him and pass rushers. And you could tell pass rushers are coming right at him. And a lot of times these guys, you know, they get their hands up, they get ready. They're ready to counter whatever the pass rusher does. Where can I readjust my hands? How can I anchor? How can I keep my shoulders in front of him? Darnell Wright, the second a guy gets within striking distance, he puts his hand out. And there was a specific rep. Oh, I don't think it was against, was it against Derek Hall? Maybe it was the other Auburn guy. I can't, I can't remember exactly who it was, who it was against, but they were coming out at full speed. And Darnell Wright just stuck his hand out and punched him straight in the shoulder. And you could tell that that totally threw them off. Didn't know what to do after that. Darnell Wright hit him. And then he got the other hand in there, was able to latch underneath the pads and underneath the arms. And boom, the rep was done. He had him totally beat. And it's that kind of, I'm going to take the fight to you mentality that I love about Darnell Wright. So yeah, I guess I am. Uh, I guess I am leading the charge a little bit here for him. Does Cole Kublik say pass protection doesn't have to be passive. That's hundred percent. One hundred percent. Okay. Last one for you. Uh, Kyle Trask, Super Bowls in Tampa over under 4.5. Um, you know, we'll go over, you know, I think, you know, I think yep. we got to go over Kyle, you know, Kyle Trask. He's just going to be, uh, I think, yeah, when it's all said and done, uh, he'll be one behind Brady is the way that uh, the way that I'm looking at it here. So I'll go uh, I'll go six for six Super Bowls for Kyle Trask in Tampa. All in Tampa, of course. He can't go anywhere else. Won't happen he, anywhere else. He will win more Super Bowls than Miss Donuts from Alyssa. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's right. the overrunner. Yeah. Trevor, appreciate the time, man. Best of luck on everything you got going on. Of course, man. Anytime. What's my destiny, Mom? You're gonna have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates fullest. You never know what you're going to get. Figuring out, we're talking road trips. We have done gas station food with our producer, Dan Matthews, but we haven't done road trips and figuring out somehow, some way. Well, we took a little road trip over the weekend. Nice little four-hour trip up to Savannah. Uh, Had ourselves a lovely time. I had never been to Savannah before. We ate all the food that Savannah had to offer Mrs. Wilkes top three lunch of my lifetime. I think maybe top one. I mean, it was, it was that good. Like lives up to the hype, everything that you, that, that like that people say about it confirmed hundred percent. I think I gained 12 pounds over the weekend. I I really do. It was one of those weekends where I'm just like, yeah, when am I going to be here again? We're just going to go for it. Just a lovely, lovely place to eat and wander. That's what they say. What what, you, what do you do in Savannah? You eat, you eat and wander. That's the best way to do it. The little ghost tour Saturday night. A lot of paranormal activity stories. Interesting. Interesting. Learn a little bit about yellow fever. Yeah. We went always, for it. You know, it, listen, if you can get some yellow fever in there, it's always a good trip. But yeah, dude, no, Savannah's awesome. I, I loved it when we went. And then hilariously, we did the thing again where I was in Orlando, Florida, and you were in Georgia. <laughs> we just switched places. So yes. yeah, uh, Savannah is very, I hate to say underrated because it, we're, especially around the South, like a lot of people know about it, but it's worth it. It, it is properly rated if your people say it's really good. Yes, definitely properly rated. Um, yeah, because nobody has a bad thing to say about Savannah, nor should they. Um, at least not not anybody that I've talked to. Everybody's oh, even the, the cashier at the grocery store yesterday was like, "Oh, I went back in 2009. It was unbelievable. I want to go back soon." I was like, "Yeah, probably hasn't even changed a whole lot since 2009. Maybe a few more restaurants here or there, but very very similar." Um, but yeah, four hours each way. Surprisingly close to Orlando. We also made our first ever trip to Bucky's. 
which how about um, that oh i couldn't i would love to hear your internal narrator during a bucky's trip that place is chaos <laughs> it's alternative chaos it is absolute chaos it is um some darn good chopped brisket it was yeah. but that place is bonkers man like not breaking any news by saying that greeted by six different people upon entry mascot included i'm gonna count that um it, it was unexpected. I, I, you know, you're thinking, all right, you roll up, you kind of know what you're expecting. There's going to be a ton of people inside. There's probably going to be, you know, a lot of different things that they have to offer. I've, I've seen Bucky's. It's not like I was unfamiliar with that, but being greeted by that many people upon entry and then having like wh- whatever cheer chant they did when you, order, when you, when you pick up a, a chopped brisket sandwich, like where everybody in the area can hear, I was like, what, what is happening right now? This is, I didn't, did not expect that for picking up a sandwich. Didn't even have to communicate with any of them. They just had had them all made already. Um, best gas station bathrooms I've ever seen. I would I would describe it for me. It was like Chick Fil A gas station, uh, Walmart, Love Child. That's that's what it felt like. Um, but yeah, a little bit of Publix vibes in there too. Yeah, I've I've often said that Bucky's is the most uh, American place on earth, and that if you put just like a, a standard European in the middle of it, they would just simply vaporize because the Americanness, which is all of the all of the food, all of the stuff, just it was everyone's loud and touching each other. It's like ah, it's, it's a lot. super yeah. It's it's almost like you know the whole like is Texas the South thing. I think Bucky's is like a pretty good example of how Texas is just Texas because it's like Southerners would never come up with such a thing, but they love it. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is something. It, it absolutely is. And we made sure to stop there on both the way there uh, and the way back. But yeah, everything from, from a driving standpoint, easy drive minus the rain that we faced on the way there. Um, I used to drive four hours to school from where I lived in the suburbs of Chicago, driving to Indiana. So that that was what I always considered like my standard road trip. One hour, in my opinion, is minimum distance for a road trip. If you're driving two hours each way, it can be a day trip. Anything longer, spend at least a night. Four hours each way, spend two nights to get your money's worth. Is are those fair parameters? Yep. No. Okay. I think I think you're right. I was literally thinking about that when I came back because it's like you know, it's six hours to Atlanta from like Orlando. And I was like, we're almost there, and like it's an hour. That's a road trip. <laughs> six hours. Yeah, that's that's pushing it a little bit. That's I always say Atlanta is like just too far outside of my range to want to drive that. Like I'll, I'll right. always fly to to Atlanta. Um, unless it's like atypical circumstances or something like that, we're driving through to somewhere else or, or whatever have you. But yeah, four hours is kind of like my, my comfort zone for like a, a true road trip. I'm like, I don't have to like mentally prepare myself really that much for it, but yeah, first long trip in our new car. Don't have satellite radio set up just yet. Didn't want to go with the Pandora thing with the signal going in and out. And so that meant Lauren just monitored the radio the entire time. That's not the way it should be done on a road trip. It's not, if I'm alone, I go podcast. But music is essential. Variety is essential. Country is my default, but you got to have flexibility, especially if you're doing the rotating stations thing. Um, I'm a one-handed food only guy. I usually avoid driving while trying to wolf down a sandwich. Can't be like a banana, like trying to do the peel or something like an orange while driving. I can't do that. Pretzels, granola bars, Chex Mix. Those are my go-to snacks. What about you? Yeah, no, I think... um... It's real quick on the music thing. This won't surprise you at all. But like Brittany is a very sleepy girl and I stay awake all the time. I don't sleep ever. And so whenever she drives, she puts on like intense EDM. So she like doesn't get tired. And so the whole time she's and then like me i've gotten into like some really like um i don't even, I, I jokingly call it emo country but someone's gonna call me out and tell me that's wrong but like 
um Tyler Childers, like um oh yeah uh, Zach Bryan, like that that type Sturgill. of vibe yeah. where it's like really Sturgill, yeah, like really just like acoustic, like old school country that's new. I didn't know there were this many bands that did that. Like I found a couple of them and I like, kind of like drew the through line. So I would like put that on, and Brittany would just immediately go to sleep. And I was like, this is so perfect. We both get to like and like I get to have my soft music that chills me out, and she goes to sleep, and then she plays like a tits music, and I'm like, Oh yeah, let's go. So it's it's a very fun time. But uh yeah, as far as food, I'm I'm so dumb about food because like it, it, we've done like, you know, like road trip food, all that. But it's like I'm so dumb because I'll find myself if there's not a Chick-fil-A, let's be honest here. If there's not if it's a Sunday, which is the yep. big problem with road trips is the way back is always on a Sunday. And you can't go to Chick-fil-A. Um, and so because on the way, wherever I'm going, I will get my big old thing of 30 nuggets. I will crush it. I no Whoa. shame. Uh, well, not me, like for the car. I always oh, okay. get that's okay. my road trip tradition. Whoever's in the car will get a 30 of nuggets and just split them. And then whatever they get, they get. But it's like a little house nuggets in the car. Uh, but yeah, on the way back, like my default bad food that i know is bad is taco bell which is not even practical every time i get it i'm like it's not practical because you can't eat a taco while you're driving but i try every single time and i fail every single time connor i'm gonna crush for this the taco bell the taco bell experience for me it, it died a painful death in 2010 and i haven't been able to go back to it so it's never even and by died a painful experience i mean if you get food poisoning from something two times in a row that's just <laughs> not food for you it's yeah. not and that that's what that's what happened at that stage of my life. I think I've shared that on these airwaves, but that that never gets consideration if if I'm on a road trip and we have some place to stop, which I I like to settle on the list of places to stop so that you can say, okay, whether it's you know, Chick-fil-A, Wendy's, Subway, whatever whatever your list is, have that. And that way, mm-hmm. anytime in the next 20 to 30 minutes, something like that, you could see that on the sign and think, all right, we're gonna stop. When, as soon as we see one of those, we are going to stop. And I, you know, I always try and find. Do you stop an at the local place. Do you stop at the local place when you see the local place on the sign? The sign that's like Ted's Diner or Ted's no. to go. Do you do you, no? You keep pushing. No, I keep I uh, I keep pushing more times than I unless it's a place that I've already seeked out and I've done the right. research. I am not. That is a situation. One of the rare situations. And I, trust me, like if I go to a place like Savannah, we're not eating any sort yeah, of like chain to, yeah. food or anything like that. But in a situation like that, where I need reliability, I'm going to to a place where I'm like, all right, I know I can get an oven roasted chicken breast with whatever from Subway, which I've had like twice since I've been in the state of Florida. So that's not even a good example. But you get what I'm saying. Like you know what you're getting when you go to Chick Fil A. You're getting those thirty nuggets. You're going to be good to go. I can go to this local place, and it's not really quick. It's not really efficient. It's not really something that I can eat in the car. And that to me is just too many unknown variables. So I don't do that. But mm-hmm. if it's some place that I know is coveted, then I'm setting and and I'm I'm making sure we're doing it beforehand. That's an entirely different story. Very Ted's now in the scouting report. He's like Shahid on the Saints. You saw you saw Ted on the sign and Ted's grill. You're like, nope, don't know what to do with that guy. He's wearing 88. He's fishy. I don't, I'm not re- prepared for him. That's smart because you at least know. If you get bad Taco Bell, you know exactly how it goes. If you get bad McDonald's, you know exactly how it goes. You get bad Ted's grill, you could be in the hospital. You just that's a good that's a good point. I don't know, Ted. Sorry, Ted. Like if I'm in a situation where I'm I'm gonna be seeing you for a long period of time, that's a little bit different. But maybe I need to be more adventurous of that. Um, but no, I try minimal stops. We know what we're getting. I stop if you if we're stopping once every hour, we got a problem. Pregnant wife in the car is the only exception for something like that. Um, and Lauren was only once every like hour and a half or something like that. But yeah, you gotta address all needs. At, at your stop and that's maybe another reason why i don't do like the random like one-off local places like we're, we're hitting 
three things, right? We're hitting gas, we're hitting bathroom, we're hitting food. If all of our needs cannot be met within a specific exit, probably going to be a little bit tough. And if I'm going to a place, you know, if there's a Chick-fil-A, if there's a Subway, if there's something like that, then that's a little bit of a different story. And chances are you're going to be able to, to check all of those boxes at an exit like that. So yeah, that's the... If you see a Starbucks, it's usually a great exit. It's like, okay, now we got 10 things over here. Because if they're willing to put a Starbucks in there, it's like, you're going to find something to eat. That's usually my like my North Star. Because I'm like, okay, even if I don't want Starbucks, if I see it on the side, I'm like, Starbucks is smart enough to put places around other places. Yes, agreed, 100%. Um, yeah, that sounds like a lot of parameters because they are. Uh, a road trip is not the place to lack efficiency. I, I get it though. Like they should be fun. But be honest, at the end of you can look forward to a road trip. You can you can say that road trips are the best thing ever, but by the time the last hour rolls around, you are counting down the exits until you reach your destination. Fair oh, enough. Yes. yes. And it also like your enjoyment definitely depends on the company for sure. Like doing a solo road trip or doing one with your significant other. So different than doing a road trip with the boys. I think that it's a very different vibe. I think with the boys, you get more of that one or two hour window and it's a blast. You know what I'm saying? Um, and not that, you know, every friend group's different. I know that. But when you're really going for the endurance, it's better to be alone or with one like significant other that knows you really well. So you're not like trying to always worry about the ox or whatever. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. hundred percent. All right. Let's go to the Saturday down South podcast, Facebook group. Um, I asked the questions, uh, what is the ideal road trip distance? What's the best place in the country to road trip through given the choice driver or passenger driver all day? Uh, what's the best road trip food and music Bucky's underrated, overrated, overrated, or properly rated and your best road trip horror story. Garrett Young says, me and two friends drove from South Carolina to Oregon in three days. As a native Southeasterner, I never knew how big the West was until I experienced turning on to I-80 and hearing Apple Maps say, continue for 987 miles. Have you experienced I-80 West before? No. I have spent more time on I-80 than any other road at wow. any other interstate because when I lived in Nebraska – that was what I drove to and fro. That's that's the major highway. So 50 miles each way. And I would I would commute when I lived in Grand Island and I would drive to Kearney and then I would come back. And the amount of hours that I would spend on I-80, even for like not related to that, driving to Arapahoe for 50 minutes away. And because the way that Nebraska is set up is that everything is kind of based around I-80. And so you would have like all these little towns that are like right off of it, but to get anywhere, you pretty much had to get on I-80 and it wasn't like, oh, you have, you know, suburbia where you have this town, then this town, then this town, then this town. It's not like, you know, Apopka, then Altamont, and then, you know, that were, then Castleberry, like, you know, towns like that, where it's just like one after another. It's like, oh no, you're going to have a break where there's like 300 people and you're just road tripping through nothing. I don't Nothing. mean to generalize here. Is it literally cornfields? No, no, it's really not. Um, but there's it's an open land. There's no corn. It's just, I mean, like not not just that. Like there's obviously some of that, but it's 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 really more just like plains. It is mm -hmm. just wide open spaces, and it's just not anything to look at. It's beautiful. There are very functional, necessary parts of it, but I eighty man. I-80 is a lot. That 987 miles on I-80 is – I don't, that would be the point where I'd be like, let's just fly. Can't do it. Yeah, honestly, like 
that's my favorite part of the road trip is when you get on the big road and you can just stop caring about the GPS. So, hey, spin zone, you know which direction you're going the whole time. True. Um, and I will say, like, I've, I've never driven out west, but this is a map that I saw that just blew my mind. I, I, I won't spoil it for you, but just look up elevation table of the United States. It's not what you think it is if you've never seen it. Elevation table. That, I have no idea what that is. It just shows where the mountains are. Oh, and, okay. Yeah. Yep. None in Nebraska. I don't do that. None. Yeah. No, yeah. Louisiana. Yeah, you got to get to like Colorado before you get start getting into that stuff. Um, okay, let's go to this one from Laura Doyle. Laura says, I love this topic. I've lived all over the country and driven all over across multiple times. Most beautiful drives are uh, Pacific Northwest, uh, Cali. If you do the Pacific Coast Highway, Low Country, South Carolina, and headed west through Arkansas, once you're about 20 miles out of Memphis, opposite end of that would be Kansas, especially going through Wichita, where it actually smells. Ohio, Indiana, yes, confirmed. Rough drives. I 65 through Indiana is bad, real bad. Um, New Jersey and the first 400 miles or so in West Texas before you get to El Paso. Um, coolest thing about road trips and living all over is getting to cross a lot off my list. I've been to every SEC school except LSU and Mississippi State, almost every ACC school and Pac-12 school, and more than half of the Big Ten and Big 12 schools, even if it's just along the way, I make it a point to stop. Worst road trip experience was headed back from Bend, Oregon, which is that is the place of the last remaining blockbuster i think that's still in existence good doc on netflix Go yes check that, out. that is their claim to fame and also yes this, so do very things. much um yeah did that after um with my brother after a day of skiing running out of gas and almost dying slash driving off the mountain um you name it that happened during a surprise blinding blizzard over a super remote area on mount hood on the drive back to portland for his flight out that night that sounds t- terrifying hold um, on pause have you ever run out of gas i have not but i have had the car turn off to make me think i ran out of gas and then it kicked back on and for oh, about God. two seconds i feared that that was my reality i yeah i had to uh in high school one time i had to call my mom to get me a jug and put some put some gas in my car but that was it so that's actually not that bad that's not that if you didn't get to the point where you had to siphon if that was your only option then I I think you're good. I think you've made out oh, okay. Everybody ha- has it happen at least once, probably throughout some point in their life. When you're mm-hmm. dealing with something like that, um, that is absolutely terrifying. Um, best road trip advice is caffeine, good music, and knowing uh, that Chick Fil A will pay for highway advertising, even though the restaurant might be six miles after you get off the exit. Uh, can't wait to hit the road again. Didn't there used to be a rule where you couldn't? have advertising on the on the sign saying food options unless it was within two miles or something i you know we talked about bucky's in the open and those guys are war criminals when it comes to that they will tell you there's a bucky 67 miles away <laughs> it's unbelievable <laughs> they let you know and you right. know when you're getting closer and yeah they, they will not let you pass bucky's without acknowledging that you're passing bucky's they do a very good job of that for sure uh, let's go to this one 
from we got some good ones here we got some really good ones uh let's go to this one from peyton white peyton says i think the best distance is a nice four to six hour trip gets you a decent ways away from the normal i think the best place to road trip through is louisiana oh how about that uh you're talking maybe one and a half hours to get through the state and every gas station you stop in has full meals ready to go from some grandma working in the back of it uh i'm a driver passenger puts my hands in someone else's life i think he meant to say <laughs> your boy meant to say put my put my life in someone else's hands i would assume he's a yeah he's a uh, fellow car crash survivor we're going to do this so of course he's got to say oh i like to drive because we'll drive through get a car crash okay i did not pick up on that good catch very good catch best road trip music for vibes is nice kid cutty discography food my must-haves are peanut m&ms and og checks mix with a coke sometimes fritos and barks will will hit though uh bucky's overrated and he says best road trip horror story uh this is this just your story will is this is that what no, the fact that i'm not first place is really impressive unbelievable okay uh peyton's best road trip horror story drove on a three-day weekend from central texas to atlanta for my wife's then girlfriend's 21st birthday surprised her because i was still in the military at that point but it was a 14-hour trip partied all night woke up had an awful stomach bug important that it wasn't a hangover Peyton says ended up driving 14 hours back while stopping every 100 miles to use a restroom slash Chuck uh got back with 15 minutes to spare before PT started went for a five mile run with no sleep and sick by far the worst road trip I've ever had different kind of feeling when you go into a road trip knowing it's gonna suck just knowing that you're not feeling your best you don't get right on a road trip or a flight. You're not going to suddenly feel better. You're just going to feel worse. And that doesn't have to be just a stomach issue. That can be a head issue. You know, whatever the case may be, you will not suddenly feel better from being out in a car for a long period of time. That's my take. And it's always going to get worse. That's actually a really good point. When we were, um, my mom's like uh, present to me when I graduated was, um, we're on a cruise in Europe and on the way back. Um, well, number one, Brittany like chipped a tooth and it was like dying. But I also had like a stomach bug. And I was like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to like take some melatonin, drink some wine and pass out. But I couldn't go to sleep. So I was just hammered. And, I'm not... <laughs> and the world felt like a future music video. And I was just like moving around like that for like three hours. And I just got off the plate. Like there was no, there was no comfort. So you're actually, that's a really good note. You're never gonna. You're just never gonna get better. There's, there's just no way. Like we're not meant to be in motion for long periods of time, and even when we're at our best, it can make us feel crappy. So I, somebody, somebody out there is gonna, is gonna say like, oh, I get like a road trip high or something like that. No, 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 no. May, may Stay away from me if you get that. If yeah. four hours of the road trip, road trip, you start singing, stop. Yeah, you're relying on something else for that road trip high. If you know what I'm saying. All right. In which case, I don't. I probably don't want to be in a car with you anyways. Jackson Howard says, Bucky's is overrated. If I'm on a trip, I got five to 10 minutes max on a gas station stop. You're easily spending 30 minutes in a Bucky's looking at all the stuff that they have uh, that you're definitely not buying on a road trip, not to mention their packed parking lot. Use the bathroom, get an energy drink, bang and rain, and bounce. When you pull up to Bucky's, you assume it's going to be that long. We got in and out. Just to get a sandwich, we didn't. We, all, all we did was get brisket. We didn't need gas. We didn't need to go to the bathroom. Like that's how. I mean, that's how much respect we had for for the Bucky stop. 
eight minutes, eight minutes in and out. And this was a zoo. I mean, an absolute zoo. There were so many people there. And Warren was just like, is this going to be worth it? Probably not. But then like, all right, eight minutes. Brisket was delicious. And it was super efficient. It's a well-oiled machine, but I agree with his point that if you're just looking to get in and out and not necessarily even have the temptation of looking at all that stuff, probably go to a different gas station that isn't Bucky's. Yeah, so this is a, this is a fact that's, that you're going to appreciate. So when I was in college, I got gaslit into making decisions quickly because <clears throat> one time we had this person come in who prepared us for interview questions, and it was a sports marketing department. So he stressed the story about Whenever they interview quarterbacks for the draft, they time how quickly they decide on their meals. And so for whatever reason, I was like desperate to find a job. And that advice just like stuck with me. So I just kind of don't like browse ever. So like if you go, if you take me to a Bucky's or something, I'm like, I want that, that, that. And I just keep pushing because I literally got gaslit in college into thinking that like thinking about things like that is just bad. And so, yeah, I'm a hundred percent with you. Like I would be like, I need this, 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 or I don't need it. Cause if I have to think about if I need something, I don't need it. And it drives Brittany like crazy because we'll like organize our closet and I'll be done in like 10 minutes. Cause I'm just like, don't wear that. Don't wear that. I'm out. Boom. She's like, your mom gave you don't care. Nope. Out done. And so like does the place like a Bucky's does not ever get me like window shopping. Cause I'm just like beat earrings. Do you like those? No. All right. Bye. It, I, I totally get why, why you could easily just spend a lot of time in there. If you're one of those people, oh, yeah. like, well, I got to see this stuff. I mean, this place is, this place is freaking huge, but if you just go in with a purpose, I think right. it's, you can actually be pretty efficient in there. At least it's similar I, to a Chick-fil-A The the line, the size yeah. of the line does not indicate is not negative of the duration of the line. Agreed. Agreed. hundred percent. Uh, let's end with, uh, this one. Same with this from, from our guy, Emery here. Uh, Emery says, went on a cruise out of Miami with the family when I was in high school. There were six of us. We were driving from Atlanta in a large SUV. So my sister, her longtime boyfriend, and I all laid the seats uh, in the back down, put a bunch of blankets on the floor and passed out for like four hours. Wow. Uh, we woke up expecting to be almost in Miami. Uh, nope. My mom and stepdad turned the GPS off because we could get around before GPS was a thing. We can do it now. Uh, once <laughs> again, nope. They got on the wrong interstate somewhere in the Orlando area and realized it when uh, when they started seeing signs that they were close to Tampa. Not close. At least an hour and 20. Hour and 20, depending on how you're driving. Uh, we woke up just outside of Orlando when we were supposed to be an hour or so from the from the port. We got there uh, just before they were doing the last call for boarding. We almost got abducted by a cartel in Mexico on that trip, but it was still a fun vacation. How? <laughs> Based on these two pieces of information, you could fill every space with roses. I would be like, that's great. a lead, man. Goodness gracious. Yeah, Tampa, I mean, for, for those who, I mean, don't necessarily know, like, that's very much on the other side of the state. <laughs> That is, we're talking Gulf side versus Atlantic side. Uh, usually, you're going out of the Atlantic side, but um, yeah, that's a th that's not a, a routine mistake. That's that's a significant mistake, and you drive like hell to make up for that. As UCF fans would tell you, Tampa is definitely not in South Florida. Um, this is true. <laughs> so let me ask you just a couple of things off of that. Number one, what is the most you can sleep in a car? I'm a great car sleeper. Great car sleeper. Yeah, not a good plane sleeper, but a great car sleeper. Uh, my parents were very appreciative of that when I would go to sleep when they would just drive me around the block when I was a kid. Always worked um, up until I was about, mm, I don't know, like 28, 29. 
And then I was like, I should probably be driving the car. You guys don't have to drive me around for me to fall asleep. Um, but I would say probably in uh, like 45 minutes. And that's like, you know, you wake up a little bit, you know, when you're in right. the car, but you're not really waking up. I, I I could do 45 minutes like solid and anything more than that. You, you probably need to check on me. Something's gone horribly wrong. What about you? That's still like pretty, pretty short. It's you just, you, you pop up and you just, you're scared you're in another country. Exactly. Remember this guy. It's like, what happened? Were we attacked by marauders yep. in the car? And, you know, Brittany tells the exact same story. Their parents put her in a car and drove her around. And I truly don't know if I'm going to do that with my kids because for me, I can't, I've never gotten close to falling asleep while driving. Never. Which is. Oh, while awesome. driving or while being in the car? While driving. While driving. That's what I'm saying. So it's, it's a give and take because I can't sleep in a car. <laughs> so I, I've never gotten close to, to sleeping while driving, but I also, if I'm a passenger, I'm just wired. <laughs> I don't know why. So the advantages of being able to get a nap in and be fresh versus potentially crashing your car. I don't know. Um, That's true. Second thing, this is an old well, this is the oldest story I could possibly tell. So one time we were on the way to a high school football game. I've talked about this before, but my senior year at Hoover, Hoover got uh, messed over by local politics and put in a weird zone where they played all these inner city schools because the 6A schools got tired of losing. And so we had to like travel across all of Alabama in places that didn't make any sense. So there's one time we were going, actually, I think this is on the way. Yes, this is on the way to our spring game, which was like in some part of Muscle Shoals or somewhere weird, like Mobile. Yeah. So it was a big, it was like a bigger trip. Um, and it was our whole kind of like class that was going. It was four or five of us in the car. We were having fun. So one girl goes to sleep. We all decided to play a prank on her that we would change all the clocks in the car, change all of our watches and tell her that we took a wrong turn and that she was going to be like late to whatever she had to go to do in the next one. I think she had like a practice at like 5 a.m. And so we kept this ruse going for a smooth 45 minutes. Oh. And that is something that would not even be close to possible today because all you would need to do is check your cell phone. But I guess like... Either she didn't have hers or like something was going on. And like, basically, we just duped her into thinking that she was in like, like I had this line that was just like, yeah, we accidentally took the East Georgia bypass. And now we're just like almost in Atlanta. So we just got to turn around. And we're just like, yeah, all of our moms are mad. Like, da, da, da. she didn't think that's the question. Why is Will still driving? Because if that had happened to me, I'd be like, all right, buddy, get out of here. Uh, but yeah, it was we kept that going for 45 minutes. That was the last time a clock prank has ever worked. Yeah, that's that's it. That 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 is the last possible time because any time after that, it's it's cell phones. I mean, you probably pull out your phone every five minutes when you're in the car too. Which I'm actually not a big cell phone in the car type person because then it kind of gets me a little bit car sick. I'm not crazy about that. But I'm kind of anti texting and driving. What? Wow. No, opinion. No, I'm saying when I'm the passenger. I'm, oh, okay. no, I don't, I don't like doing that. I don't like sitting on my phone or something like that. I'd rather just be able to take a nap or just, you know, listen to music and enjoy company. That's, that's, that's why my phone is, is not coming out. Um, but yeah, you would just check that in two seconds if you got uneasy about it. So good, good time to do the prank. Got it in, you know, could yeah. do it now. Um, let's do, let's end with lad of the week. Will. um, I have a lad and a lass of the week. Go for it. that. Yeah. Uh, I have Donna and Ed Kelsey, the parents of a certain Jason and Travis Kelsey, who you will be seeing nonstop during the Super Bowl. That's a prediction. Uh, they, I can't begin to imagine like the the emotion of that family going through this week and how crazy it is. Uh, they went on uh, Kelsey Brothers podcast, New Heights, and it was pretty adorable. I mean, it was. I'll give them that. The, the clips that came out of that were very, very wholesome. Um, I mean, but think about it. Like, if you were a parent. And of course, everybody can picture what this is. What this would be like. You're a parent, and both your kids have already won a Super Bowl. So, 
<laughs> one of your kids is going to win another. The range of outcomes is pretty limited, right? I, I mean, other than one of your kids getting injured, that's, that's, I think, the only way that you end up feeling bad in this game because, you know, heartbreaking win, heartbreaking loss, whatever the case may be, you're at least getting one side that's going to benefit from it. So I think the worst case scenario is uh, season ending, like, like long-term injury for son on the winning team. That's, that's the only way that this can be a bad weekend, but it'll be a great weekend for him. I'm sure uh, they should just bet the over because the, both their kids are on offense. So like, is that insider trading if a player's parents bet? No. I'd be really interesting to see. Cause no. yeah, I guess, I guess they're both trying to score points really. So yeah. And neither of them are on deep. Yeah. That's one of the rare ones where it's like, both of them could really make a claim because every offensive line would tell you offensive lines are his position to play, especially center. So it, he would, Jason would probably call Travis like a baby. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, glamorous tight end, catch the ball. Whereas Travis would be like, you know, nobody knows. But they could literally go back and forth. Like, they would, even though Travis is, like I said, top five, like all time receiving yards. I mean, it's not, it's not like, Travis. so I think that's actually pretty cool. That's like probably the best sibling rivalry we've seen. Um, yeah, that's, that's, you're absolutely right. And I love the Super Bowl, such a great matchup. Um, yeah, for me, shout out Jay Woody for bringing this up on uh, the Facebook group. Um, but, and he, he, he put a spin on it that I would not think of, but he's absolutely correct. Um, I'm going to stay in line with yours. It's another parent. Uh, it's Jalen Hurts is that a very in Hurts. Mm. Um, and I think that at his point was if Jalen Hurts came from a bad situation, we would all know about it. And lots of people in the post said, you know, I didn't know that he had a great home life and that his dad was a coach and has been with him his entire life and that helped him. And I brought it up when we talked about the uh, championship AFC and NFC quarterbacks and that he's the him and Burrow are both apex coaches kids because they've gotten better every year. They're like locker room, got gym guys, gym, like all the things you see in um, coaches kids. But I think that the. um, here we go again. I think that white players get that a little bit more than black players. I think that the narrative has been spent so so far on ESPN, the draft. You see it every draft season as far as, you know, oh, this kid came, his mom was on, you know, this drug. or da, 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 da. And there's not a lot of spotlight put on these like positive black fathers. So I, I definitely want to do that and say that about you know Jalen Hurts' dad. He, he's been just exemplary. He obviously coached his son to be a five-star um quarterback and go to Alabama and the grace that he's handled every situation in his career not only just you know I mean starting off um what's what was the guy's name that was supposed to start over him in the USC game um bear what the, the five-star like dude that started the Blake, game Blake Barnett Blake Barnett there we go and it's like he was you know he's behind him he has first first snap was a fumble every part of his career it hurts to show a level of poise that i think is in a class of his own even when considering a guy like burrow because he's done he's dealt with so much adversity despite being a five-star that's the crazy thing you know he's gotten benched he's got several times he's had, had all this stuff going was he a five-star was he, a five-star? Uh, was he close that? i feel like yeah. i feel like he was he was like borderline that's the thing every recruiting service is different but he's a high four-star bam and look at no you know regular quarterback so but either way i'm not saying he was no you know three-star or anything like what was me story but i think that you know based on his talent level he's done amazing just because being a four-star doesn't make you an nfl quarterback so i just want to like shed some life on him or some light on him and the fact that he's handled all of these weird situations getting you know added to a team with a coach that was kind of on the way out with a quarterback that was injury prone and had all this other stuff going on and wince and i, I just i think that 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 dynamic is great and the one thing about hurts that i can guarantee you when or lose he's going to handle it with class and i think that that's because of his family and because i was raised and i think that in the south and make a big deal out of that we should do it with him too Dylan hurts is a man he is no other way mm-hmm. to spin it. He's he's just the man. Uh, we will have a lot of 
I'm sure bold and brash predictions related to uh, certain Jalen Hurts on uh, Friday's pod that we will that we will have, and it'll be all Super Bowl based. But yes, we'll have some more Jalen Hurts uh, discussion. If you have not, leave us a five star review. Subscribe to this podcast. Follow us on Twitter at the SCS Pod at Sat Down South. Subscribe to our basketball newsletter, Blue Chip Grit. You can do that at bluechipgrit.com. Join the Facebook group here named Red on Air with figuring out what bold and brush. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.